The Psalms, the Psalms are not as safe as you think they are. Sure, there are many Psalms which supply us with great comfort, but when we are greeted with words like we find in Psalm 109, words like, May his children be fatherless, and his wife a widow. Words which effectively call for a man's death. When we read words like that, we are supplied with a great bit of discomfort. When we read and study psalms like this one, I'm reminded of what C.S. Lewis wrote in his book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Lewis introduces us to Aslan the Lion. Uh, to, he introduces the children uh, to Aslan the Lion through Mr. and Mrs. Beaver. Lewis writes, Is he a man? asked Lucy. Aslan, a man? said Mr. Beaver sternly. Certainly not. I tell you, he is a king, king of the wood, and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who is the king of the beasts? Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan. I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, and make no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. The God of the Psalms isn't safe, but he is good. Even as we stare at the harsh curses like the one I mentioned just a few moments ago, I pray that this morning we would come to see the goodness of God with greater clarity. If you haven't done so already, let me encourage you to go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Psalm 109. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, Psalm 109 can be found on page 508, I believe. 508. No, that's not right. Yes, it is. It is right. Wonderful. Just making sure I got my page numbers right. Thank you, sister. Um, the Psalms, as uh, I just thought, that can't be the right page. Anyway, uh, the Psalms are a wonderful collection of prayers and poems and proclamations of the ancient people of God. Often they were meant to be used in Israel's corporate worship. Psalm 109 is a song. It was preceded by 106 and 107 and 108, as you might have guessed. And the theme that's running through these psalms leading up to Psalm 109 is the theme of deliverance. And that emerges in our psalm as well. In Psalm 109, we hear the cry ringing out, Deliver me from David. Psalm 109 is similar to the psalm we studied last week, Psalm 83. Psalm 109 is what is called an imprecatory psalm. As you may recall, an imprecatory psalm is a psalm or song in which the author calls down judgment on God's enemies. While Psalm 83 was a corporate prayer of the ancient people of God, Psalm 109 appears to be an individual prayer. David uses I, me, and my a good bit throughout this psalm. Before we begin uh, studying this psalm together, let me just kind of give you some guideposts for the psalm as a whole. Uh, the, the main idea of Psalm 109 is this. Destruction and deliverance come from the hand of the God of love. And for this, He deserves our devotion. 
So if I had to summarize the thrust of Psalm 109 in a single sentence, that, that would be it. Destruction and deliverance come from the hand of the God of love. And for this, He deserves our devotion. This is worked out in verses 1 through 5 where we see King David being hunted by hateful men. David then prays in verses 6 to 20 that the Lord would punish these hateful men for they have unjustly pursued others even to the point of death. Verses 21 to 31 then cap off David's prayer by petitioning the Lord to deliver him from his enemies on the basis of God's steadfast love so that he might give praise to the God who saves. We're going to study Psalm 109 under three headings. Slandered, sentenced, and saved. Slandered, sentenced, and saved. In verses 1 through 5, David is slandered. His name is sullied. In verses 6 through 20, David prays that his enemies would be sentenced and punished by the Lord. And finally, in verses 21 to 31, David prays that the Lord would save him so that he might sing wonders of God's love. Let's begin with our first point, slander. And as we do, read the first five verses of Psalm 109. Psalm 109, verses 1 to 5. To the choir master, a psalm of David. Be not silent, O God of my praise. For wicked and deceitful mouths are opened against me, speaking against me with lying tongues. They encircle me with words of hate and attack me without cause. In return for my love, they accuse me, but I give myself to prayer. So they reward me evil for good and hatred for my love. Like Psalm 83, Psalm 109 begins with a call for God to speak and not be silent. God's speaking has long been associated with His acting on behalf of His people to rescue them from harm. Here we see that while God is apparently silent, wicked men are using their deceitful mouths to slander David. They speak against the king. They speak against him with lying tongues. And notice that they attack him without cause. In other words, their aggression is unjust and uncalled for. They even return or reward evil for good. None of David's good deeds go unpunished. And consider David's character. In the midst of this hostility, he has given himself to prayer, as he says in verse 4. David knows that in the midst of this circumstance, the only one who can help him is the one and only true God. David has also displayed love, as you probably noticed there. Perhaps that's one reason why this circumstance is so difficult. When we love, we often expose ourselves to the possibility of pain. We draw near to others in sacrifice, and sometimes that loving sacrifice is not reciprocated. But spurning a loving gesture is nothing compared to having our love answered with hate, as David says. For David, his love was met with hatred. Now, when did all of this transpire in David's life? Well, it's not quite clear from the psalm. that It doesn't give us specifics to be able to go, ah, yeah, that was the, the moment in time. Few proposals have been made, many of which are possible. What we need to know now is that David, the king, has been slandered. And it's not hard to see the parallels to the life of the Lord Jesus, isn't it? Wasn't he encircled by hateful and wicked men? 
And didn't he give himself to prayer when false witnesses were being brought against him? Did he not show great love to so many? Did he not heal those in pain? Did he not speak the truth in love to his enemies? And in response to his life of love, wasn't the reward for his good a betrayal by the one whom he loved and an execution for those whom he loved? His death was the most heinous act of hatred and evil in all of human history. Jesus went through far more than what David went through. And he went through far more than what we go through or see others go through in our day. Still, is it not a sad thing when the character of a good man is sullied by false accusations? These days, all it takes is for accusations to be flung across the room in order for a man's reputation to be tarnished. In recent years, I've seen this happen. I'm sure you have too. I know of one particular minister of the gospel who was so slandered. This pastor was vindicated by a Christian mediation group, vindicated in a secular court. And even his accusers have admitted that they were wrong and false in their words. Though this pastor was innocent and proven to be so, in multiple contexts and on multiple occasions, some still speak maliciously against him. And frankly, I think that he may be the canary in the coal mine for how things will go for preachers of the gospel in the days ahead. Nevertheless, I marvel at this brother's example. For just like David did here in verses 4 and 5, he gave himself to love and prayer. Brothers and sisters, let us keep our tongues from evil and our lips from speaking lies. Let us be on guard against merely raising suspicions. For so much damage can be done by so few words. Putting a question mark on the end of a sentence about your brother or sister in Christ or your neighbor does not prevent slander from being spread beyond that question. Christian, take to heart what the Apostle James said in James chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. We ought to be those who seek to protect the reputations of others. In fact, the Puritans understood that the ninth commandment, thou shalt not bear false witness, positively enjoined upon believers to maintain our neighbor's good name. Imagine if we were known as a community for guarding each other's good name. Children, youth, young adults, let me encourage you to be involved with protecting the good name and reputation of others. Talk with your parents or a mature Christian friend about what it looks like to say no to spreading false rumors about others or about how to urge others not to speak disparagingly about friends and classmates, teammates. That would be a good thing to think and pray through. Christians bear the name of Jesus Christ. And just like we want to protect his good name from disrepute, so we should desire to protect the name and reputation of others. When our neighbor's name is slandered, when the character of a good man is assassinated, it is good and right to desire that justice be meted out. It is even good and right for us to pray for that. And that's what David does in verses 6 through 20. David prays for the wicked to be sentenced to endure the punishment that their sins deserve. Let's turn now and consider our second point, sentenced. 
And as we do, I want us to read verses 6 to 20 of Psalm 109. Psalm 109, verses 6 to 20. Appoint a wicked man against him. Let an accuser stand at his right hand. When he is tried, let him come forth guilty. Let his prayer be counted as sin. May his days be few. May another take his office. May his children be fatherless and his wife a widow. May his children wander about and beg, seeking food far from the ruins they inhabit. May the creditor seize all that he has. May strangers plunder the fruits of his toil. Let there be none to extend kindness to him, nor any to pity his fatherless children. May his posterity be cut off. May his name be blotted out in the second generation. May the iniquity of his fathers be remembered before the Lord, and let not the sin of his mother be blotted out. Let them be before the Lord continually, that he may cut off the memory of them from the earth. For he did not remember to show kindness, but pursued the poor and needy, and the brokenhearted to put them to death. He loved to curse. Let curses come upon him. He did not delight in blessing. May it be far from him. He clothed himself with cursing as his coat. May it soak into his body like water, like oil into his bones. May it be like a garment that he wraps around him, like a belt that he puts on every day. May this be the reward of my accusers from the Lord, of those who speak evil against my life. Well, there is no easy path through these verses. They are as sharp and as horrifying as you think they are. In fact, they may be worse than you imagined. One thing is for certain, they were inspired by God the Holy Spirit, and so they are just and good. David has suffered slings and arrows from the tongues of wicked men, so he prays for the Lord to raise up another wicked man to sling slanderous arrows at his enemy. That is the point of verse 6. David wants every wickedness that this man pursued to come back on his head. All of the curses that he called out on righteous King David, David wants those curses reversed and brought upon him. What does David want God to do? Well, let's just work our way through. David wants God to have his enemy be tried and found guilty. Verse 7. David wants God to reject his enemy's prayers. Verse 7. David wants his enemy to die quickly and someone else to take his place. Verse 8. David repeats his request for his enemy's death by asking for the Lord to make his wife a widow and his children fatherless. Verse 9. David builds on that request and even asks God to make his family wander about and beg for food. Verse 10. David wants the collection agency to start calling in his enemy's debt and for him to suffer the loss of his property and wealth through strangers plundering his possessions. Verse 11. In the midst of all this, David even prays that God would make sure that no one would be around to take pity on his enemy or his enemy's children. Verse 12. Then David prays to the Lord to cut off his enemy's family line so that his name is no longer carried on. Verse 13. While David asks the Lord to blot out their family name, he asks the Lord not to remove the, the sins of his enemies, father and mother, from his sight. 
In other words, David asks for the Lord's righteous anger to be continually, should we say eternally, aroused, active, and attuned toward this man and his family. Now let's be honest. It is at this point that we are almost tempted to be sympathetic toward this man and his family. But David reminds us in verses 16 through 20 why this man is deserving of all these things. And and I should say here that David has clearly been swinging back and forth between a single man and many men so far in the psalm. In the first five verses, David spoke of wicked men in the plural who slandered him. But here he's referring to a wicked man, singular. I think that it's safe to say that David... Uh, had multiple enemies, but that from time to time he collapsed them into one figure, one man, in order to more easily communicate his requests for judgment. Still, we, we are tempted to be sympathetic because, frankly, these requests for judgment feel a little over the top. And perhaps that's even an understatement. Before we get too sympathetic and gushy towards this man, these enemies, consider what kind of man he was. Look at verse 16. For he did not remember to show kindness, but pursued the poor and needy and the brokenhearted to put them to death. What kind of man must you be to trample on the poor to the point of death? What kind of man must you be to prey upon the most vulnerable people in society? Would it be okay for us to say that he was deserving of justice and judgment? Compare this man to David. David, we learn from verses 4 and 5 of this psalm, loved. In other words, he loved to bless others. But this man, see in verse 17, he loved to curse. It was his delight. He made cursing his identity. He wrapped himself in cursing and drank it in with delight. Verse 18. David returns to prayer in verses 19 and 20 and asks the Lord to give him the curses that he delighted to give others. David wants the whole of this man's life to be wrapped in the curses of God. Everywhere he goes, everything he does, everything he touches, David wants wrapped in God's curses. David is praying for nothing less than what this man deserves. He deserves to have all the curses he rained down upon others rained down upon him. And here is where I think we need to step back and appreciate the larger storyline of the Bible. Otherwise, I think we will find it difficult to view these words as just and good. I mentioned this last week, but it bears repeating again. This psalm and the other imprecatory psalms are part of the story that began in Genesis and is carried on through the, through the Bible to the end of Revelation. The story is simply that God is creating, redeeming, and saving a people for His glory. That God is saving a people for Himself implies that they are in danger. They are in danger of facing His justice against their sin. But they are also in danger from other enemies in this world. God told us in Genesis 3 that He would put enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. There is a conflict that occurs between the people of God and the enemies of God, and it occurs all throughout the Bible and will continue to occur until the Lord Jesus returns in glory. This conflict becomes clearer and clearer as we work our way through the Old Testament. If you uh, recall the story of Abraham in the book of Genesis, then Lord willing, a clearer picture is beginning to emerge. 
Through Abraham, God promised to create a people for himself. Listen to what we read in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. Now the Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Note that God has promised that he will curse those who curse Abraham. And note that God promised to make of Abraham a great nation. What do great nations have? They have leaders. They have kings. Just a few chapters later, the Lord elaborates on what he meant through those promises. So, in Genesis chapter 17, verses 5 through 6, we read, I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant. These threats to King David are threats to God's covenant love. They are threats to his promises to bless his people. Threats to, bless, threats to the promises that God made to Abraham and his offspring. But not only are they threats that, uh, uh, to the promises that God made to Abraham, they are also threats to the promises that God made to David. God not only made a covenant with Abraham, he also made a covenant with David. Turn in your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 7. That's uh, page 259 of the Bibles provided. 2 Samuel chapter 7. I want us to read verses 8 through 11. This covenant with David. In this passage, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, uh, the prophet Nathan comes to speak with King David. The Lord has a word for David, and he delivers it through Nathan. Read 2 Samuel chapter 7, beginning there in verse 8. Now therefore... Thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them, so that they may dwell in their own place, and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more, as formerly, from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all of your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. I wonder if you see more clearly now what David is praying and why he is concerned. God promised to give David rest from his enemies. Well, if you turn back to Psalm 109, that's 508, the Bible's provided. Uh, if you turn back to Psalm 109, we're left with the question from those promises we just heard. Where is the rest that God promised David from his enemies? These enemies threaten God's covenant promises to Abraham and to David. They threaten God's king, the representative of God's people. An attack on God's king and God's people is inherently... Attack on God, as we saw last week in Psalm 83. David is therefore calling for nothing less than what God has already promised to do, to curse those who curse his people. 
David wants God to speak over his enemies what he has already promised, which is curse. Even David's petition for the Lord to punish the family, the wife and children of this evil man or these evil men, I think should be subsumed under this. I think we need to understand them to be part of those who threaten God's people and God's king. We should not imagine that they are innocent in this matter. They are part of the enemies of God's people, those who commit violence and curse God's people. To put it in the terms of Genesis 3, they are part of the army of the serpent. David, as we know from First and Second Samuel, was not a man of revenge. He spared the life of Saul, even when Saul pursued his life. David even did good to the house of Saul after his death by loving Jonathan's crippled son, Mephibosheth. David has not lost his moral compass in Psalm 109. Quite the contrary, he is fixed on true north, on God, his word, and his promises. And now notice verse 20. Notice what David does in Psalm 109, verse 20. May this be the reward of my accusers from the Lord. Do you understand what David is doing there? He is leaving the punishment of his pursuers in the hands of the God who is loving, just, and faithful to his promises. David will not pursue a kind of vigilante justice. David trusts God. He knows that God will do what he says he will do. Not only does David believe that he will keep his promises to curse and that he is fully just and good in doing so, but he trusts God to bless too. And so he petitions God to do just that in verses 21 to 31. In verses 21 to 31, David prays for God to save him. So let's turn then and consider our third point, saved. And as we do, uh, read Psalm 109, verses 21 to 31. But you, O God, my Lord, deal on my behalf for your namesake, because your steadfast love is good. Deliver me, for I am poor and needy, and my heart is stricken within me. I am gone like a shadow at evening. I am shaken off like a locust. My knees are weak through fasting. My body has become gaunt, no fat. I am an object of scorn to my accusers. When they see me, they wag their heads. Help me, O Lord my God. Save me according to your steadfast love. Let them know that this is your hand. You, O Lord, have done it. Let them curse, but you will bless. They arise and are put to shame, but your servant will be glad. May my accusers be clothed with dishonor. May they be wrapped in their own shame as a cloak. With my mouth, I will give great thanks to the Lord. I will praise Him in the midst of the throng. For He stands at the right hand of the needy one to save Him from those who condemn His soul to death. In the previous verses, David prayed and petitioned the Lord to deal with his enemies as their sins deserve. To deal with them as God said He would in His promises to Abraham. He even entrusted the outcome to the Lord. And here, David continues his petition to the Lord on that basis. He is pleading with the Lord to bless him. And again, we need to understand these petitions as being rooted in two things. First, in God's glory. And second, in God's covenant promises. 
In fact, the two are linked. Notice that David petitions the Lord to deal on his behalf or to deliver him for two reasons. For his own name's sake. And second, because of the Lord's steadfast love. We could put the two reasons like this. David wants God to deliver him for his own glory because of God's covenant promises. That phrase, steadfast love, is a phrase that occurs over and over again in the Old Testament. And it refers to God's covenant love for his people. David is petitioning the Lord to glorify himself through keeping his covenant promises. And this is precisely the way that we appeal to God. We petition God to act and to glorify His name. To make His name great by keeping His promises to His people. And David needs to be delivered, doesn't he? He was wasting away. He was fearful and faint of heart. His his knees are so weak he can barely stand. Verses 22 and 23 communicate that. David is weak in body and in soul. And to make matters worse, when David is at his worst, he stands scorned. He is publicly mocked and mistreated. So he pleads for help and repeats his petitions for the Lord to save him according to his steadfast covenant love. Intertwined with David's salvation is the judgment of David's enemies. For David to be saved from his enemies, God must deliver him, which necessarily means that God must judge those who are opposing him. Deliverance means the defeat of David's enemies. This is something that we need to see and grasp. Judgment and mercy are found side by side in the Bible. When one comes, so does the other. In order for Israel to be saved from slavery in Egypt, God had to punish the Egyptians and Pharaoh. For sinners to know the blessing of God, Jesus had to be cursed. Salvation and judgment cannot be separated. For in the Bible, salvation comes through judgment. Just think of how the Bible ends. It ends with Jesus returning to judge the world and to save his people from it. David knows that his deliverance means his enemy's defeat. And so he trusts the Lord. He prays that his enemies would know that there is but one only living and true God. And that he is good to those who call upon his name. In verse 28, David's trouble appears to give way to joyful trust. It's almost as if, having remembered the promises and character of God, David takes a deep breath and says... You know what? Let him curse. Then notice his certainty and confidence. But you will bless. Since God will bless, since he is the kind of God who keeps his covenant, keeps his promises, David will be the kind of king who will be glad. He will be glad and give thanks to the Lord, as he says there in verse 30. David knows his end. He will praise God in the midst of the throng. David not only knows his end, but he knows his God. He is the kind of God who stands ready to save. That's what verse 31 tells us. He will save his needy king. He will save him from those who pursue him. This psalm, what was first written by David and about David, was also a prophetic witness to Jesus Christ, God's future and final king. 
Jesus said in Luke chapter 24, verse 44, everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. After Jesus ascended into heaven and returned to his Father's right hand, one of his disciples, Peter, interpreted this psalm, Psalm 108, verse 9, as a reference to Judas. Judas, as you may know, was one of Jesus' disciples. He betrayed Jesus, and his betrayal led to Jesus' death. In Acts chapter 1, verses 16 through 20, Peter said that God the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas. Read Psalm 109, Psalm 109, verse 8. Peter said this was about Judas. May his days be few, and may another take his office. Judas was an enemy of God's king, worthy of God's curses. Now think about this psalm in light of Jesus. Judas had led men to arrest Jesus, and at his trial, his good name was slandered by wicked and deceitful men. Men lied about him, and Jesus kept his mouth closed. He was attacked without cause. He was beaten and bruised. His years of loving ministry, of healing the sick, of feeding the hungry, and of so much more was met with vile hatred. Jesus displayed love even to Judas. And Judas returned his love with hatred. Judas deserved these curses from God. He deserved to die. And so do we. For you see, like Judas, we too have betrayed God's King. We have all been made to love and serve the God who made us in His own image. But we have used the gift of being made in His image to curse God. We have decided to live our own way, to live by our own standards and for the glory of our own name. Friends, let's be honest. We've rebelled and sinned against God. We want to be quick to distance ourselves from the sins of the wicked men described here in Psalm 109. But we've done precisely what this psalm speaks about. Look at verse 17. We have loved to curse others. We have called other men fools. And even if we have not done it with our lips, we have done it in our hearts. Those who curse deserve to be cursed. For those who curse a man made in God's image are cursing the God who made that man. Our sins are ever before him. The good news of this psalm is that God sent his one and only son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to earth. God the Father sent God the Son, Jesus, to take the curses of this psalm. The curses that we deserve, Jesus took upon himself. Jesus lived a perfect, righteous, and sinless life. The life that you and I have not lived. And yet, he gave up his life on the cross. Jesus became an object of scorn. Verse 25. Keep your eyes on verse 25. I want to read from Matthew's crucifixion scene. Notice the wagging of heads. Matthew writes in chapter 27, verses 37 to 40. And over his head they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. David was confident that God would spare him. 
But Jesus knew that if you and I were to be spared of these curses, He couldn't be. He wouldn't come down from the cross. He died bearing God's curse so that we might know the blessing of God. Listen to what Paul says in Galatians chapter 3, verses 13 and 14. Paul writes, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. Three days after His death on the cross, the Father raised the Lord Jesus from the dead, vindicating Him in the sight of His enemies. Look at verse 31, for He stands at the right hand of the needy one to save Him from those who condemned His soul to death. The Father raised the Lord Jesus from the dead. And His resurrection from the dead proves to us all that His cursed death on behalf of repenting sinners was acceptable in God's sight. And friend, if you're here this morning and you're not a believer and follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, then I want to invite you to turn from your sins and to come to Him in faith. I want to invite you to escape God's wrath and curse and to know God's blessing You need to be saved. And you can be saved by believing that Jesus lived for you, died for you, and was raised from the grave for the forgiveness of your sins. And if you want to know more about what it means that you can be saved from God's curse and know God's blessing in Jesus Christ, then please do come and find me at the door after the service. Talk with a friend or family member or co-worker that you came here with this morning about what it means to escape the wrath of God and the curse that was laid on Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, as we conclude, I want us to think through two applications from Psalm 109. I want to think through application related to prayer and joyful confidence. First, can we pray Psalm 109? And if so, how? God's King, Jesus, has enemies. As members of His body, as those united to the Lord Jesus Christ, His enemies are our enemies. Can we pray Psalm 109? Can we pray that our enemies, God's enemies, would die? We can pray that they would die. We can and should pray that they would die to their sins and live unto righteousness through faith in Jesus Christ. We can and should pray that they would escape the curses of God's eternal wrath because Jesus was cursed for them We can and should pray that they would be numbered among those who will praise God in the heavenly throng. Verse 30. Second, we need to learn from David. We need to learn from his joyful confidence at the end of this psalm. He was suffering, but he knew that deliverance would come. As members of Christ's body, we will encounter Jesus' enemies in this world. Let us not pretend that everyone loves Jesus and his people. They don't. But we must love them. We will meet those who are opposed to the Lord Jesus Christ. They may lie about us. Verse 2. They may corner us and attack us without cause. Verse 3. In return for our love, they may accuse us. Verse 4. They may reward our good with evil. Verse 5. We may even be cursed by them. Verse 17. Brothers and sisters, look at verse 28. 
Let them curse. Our God will bless. Let them curse. Our God will bless. It is certain. If they will not be ashamed of their sins and come to Jesus in repentance and faith, then they will be put to shame. So be glad. Like David was glad. Verse 28. David's gladness was grounded in his confidence of the goodness of God. And that he would be glorified in bringing good to his people through keeping his promises. David knew that destruction and deliverance come from the hand of the God of love. And for this he deserves our devotion. David was gladly devoted to the Lord. And so he gave thanks to the Lord. Christian, shouldn't we give thanks to the Lord? Our portion from God are the blessings that he promised to Abraham. We should give thanks because though we may receive curse after curse after curse from men in this world, we will never receive a single curse from God because Jesus bore them all for us. By faith in the Son of God, we have become children of Abraham, Galatians 3.29. And so we are children and heirs of the promise. As heirs of the kingdom of heaven, what will we receive? In God's kindness, we will receive a joyful welcome from our Father and the cup of blessing because Jesus took the cup of curse for us. Let's pray together.